haven't uh, met before, my name's James. I'm on staff here uh, at the church. And if you've spent um, some time here at the church, you know probably by this point that I'm a bit of a, a nerd when it comes to World War II stuff. I like to read about it. Um, I like to watch all the movies and all of that. Now, as I kind of learn about it, what fascinates me about this is that often when there's like these big decisive moments, these turning points in the war, we often would imagine, well, it was simply the side that had more troops that won the battle or the better trained troops, and that's why they won the battle. But it wasn't always that way, that there was often these um, seemingly small, inconsequential things, you would think, that actually turned the tide of the battle. And, and kind of change the outcome. In the late spring of 1944, everybody in the Nazi high command knew that there was some sort of invasion coming soon because there was indications that it was going to happen. They were seeing um, allied forces building up over in England, uh, preparing to come across the English Channel into France. And so in the early mornings uh, or early morning hours of June 6, 1944, German headquarters confirmed that there was some sort of widespread attack in progress, but they didn't really, those who were on the beaches in Normandy defending did not really need the German high intelligence to tell them that there was an attack coming because as they look out towards the English Channel, they see astounding numbers of Allied ships and planes making their way towards the beaches and troops are actually starting to come ashore. Now, the big question for, for the, the Germans was this, how does Hitler want to respond? And nobody knew, because the thing was, Hitler was a bit of a partier, and he had stayed up till about 4 a.m. the morning of June 6, entertaining guests, and so he was asleep as the attack began, and nobody wanted to wake him up. Because knowing that an attack was soon coming, Hitler had insisted any initial attack that the Allies launch, that's going to be a decoy, a diversion from the real thing. And so nobody wants to wake Hitler up until they're certain that this is the real attack and not some sort of decoy. And I mean, I, I get it because I don't think I'd want to be the guy that has to go wake up a, a man like Hitler. Now, Hitler finally wakes up around 12 p.m lunchtime and he's told the news and Hitler's not angry. He's not upset by this news. He's actually um, kind of happy. He's confident that his coastal troops can handle the invasion, that they'll defeat them, push them back into the, the English Channel, and this will speed up the end of the war. Now, earlier that morning, Field Marshal Gerd von Runst had requested the immediate release of two reserve tank divisions that were held in the area of Paris. And if he was given the go-ahead, that would mean about 300 tanks, if not more, would make their way towards the coast where the Allies were invading. But here's the thing. He has to wait until he can get an answer from Hitler if he can do that because only Hitler has the authority, the power to release those tanks. And again, Hitler wakes up around 12 p.m. and sometime after lunch, he goes, okay, the tanks are released. You can go and start helping, uh, help repelling the attack taking place at Normandy. Now, the thing is the tanks can't move at that point. Because if the tanks start moving in broad daylight, they're, they're easy targets for the Allied aircraft, which now dominate the skies over Europe. And so those tanks have to wait until dusk, until it starts getting dark. And so in those hours that the German leadership waits for Hitler to wake up, and now for the tank divisions to arrive, 
The allies are moving further and further inland, and they're gaining the upper hand in the situation. And allowing Hitler to sleep in was this incredible error for the Germans. And by the end of the day on June 6, 1944, there were 156,000 Allied troops landed in France. Two weeks later, there were 650,000 Allied soldiers in France making their way towards Berlin and to victory. And it was often because Hitler and the, the Germans ignored the reality of the moment they were living in. Hitler was caught sleeping. Now, if you were here last week, um, you know that last Sunday's message, it was not like a really feel-good uh, message. It was kind of heavy, but it was a necessary one. Because we as the church can't afford to ignore the reality of the moment we're living in. That we can't get caught sleeping. And the stakes and kind of what's taking place, it's, it's a lot higher than just kind of our local church. It's, it's higher than, or it's more than like local churches closing their doors. It's more than smaller budgets to work with. It's, it's, it's more than less influence in the culture. The victims, the victors in this battle, it's not churches, it's not organizations, but it's souls that will live forever. The stakes in all of this are eternal. C.S. Lewis, he writes in his book, The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So we, we talked about this last week. There's a lot taking place in our cultural moment that might cause us as Christians to feel um, some fear. But here's the thing. We, we also talked about how every one of us is going to respond to this cultural moment in some way. And there's, there's a few ways we typically do this. The first one is this, that we, we kind of launch an attack or we try and convert the culture. And we're like, okay, we're, we're going to make it Christian again. We'll get the Bible back in the schools and the classroom. And, and we'll see everything become Christian so that it's comfortable for us as the church living here. Another one is this, that we just kind of condemn the culture and we just kind of pull out. And, and we just like, we're, we're living on our own, isolated from the culture. That way we're not going to get contaminated by all those sinful people. The other one is this, that we conform to the culture. We just kind of consume it and we just go, well, we can't win this anyways. But if we, we kind of become like the culture, maybe they'll, they'll like Jesus if he's not so, like, um, so uh, rough on some of the stuff that, that culture tends to push back on. But the fourth option is to show courage in this time. And I think this is what the church needs to do. The body of Christ needs to display courage in this moment. Um, my, my sister, Victoria, she lives on PEI, and uh, she has a dog named Darla. And she's named Darla because she's from Texas. Um, and it's a black mouth cur. And uh, Darla is an energetic dog, um, very friendly dog, wants to be up in your face. She loves you, and she thinks, if I get in your face, you're going to love me too. And so we're just kind of always up and jumping now, late last year, our family, uh, we went to visit my, my sister, and we were staying with them for a few nights, and so I pulled the car into the driveway. Seth jumps out. He runs in to go see his cousins. Shannon gets out. She starts unloading the trunk, and I'm just finishing some stuff up in the driver's seat. But um, I look in the rearview mirror, and there is our, she was five at the time, our daughter Jane, and she's just uh, sitting there looking very deep in thought. And I'm about to ask her, like, what are you doing, Jane? But I hear her say this to herself. 
you can do this, Jane. You can be brave. And, and she's talking about going in and facing her fear. Darla the dog, because Darla starts jumping and Jane does not like that at all. But Jane's giving herself this pep talk. You, you can face your fears. You can do this. And I'd love to tell you we went in and Darla and Jane were best friends, but that's not what happened. It's like Jane within like a minute is clamoring to get up into our arms away from the dog. Now, do we simply just tell ourselves when we feel fear, be brave, and that, that's, that's how we do it? Is that, is that how it works? No, we know that's not how it works. And so do we simply replace our fear with courage? No. Like courage, that's not the absence of fear. It's not the opposite of fear, but, but rather courage is this decision that there's something more important than our fear. And so I want you to be honest. Um, do you believe that people are more important than your comfort and avoiding difficulty? Because God does. In scripture, he'll call his people to do something difficult and he'll say, be courageous, be bold, take courage. And God has invited us to be part of something that's difficult, to be a part of his invasion force, to take back the world from his enemy by making disciples of Jesus. And it's not easy and it's something that can be scary. So where do we find this courage that's gonna let us be confident faithful, and hopeful when all the statistics tell us there's not really much hope when we look at what's going on in the world? Where do we find courage to respond appropriately to this, this moment that we're living in? So we, we live in this, this time where the, the general um, answer to, to like our problems, the culture will tell us, it's found within us. The general counsel of our culture says, if you think great thoughts about yourself, you can achieve great things. And almost every self-help book or guru simply kind of comes down to, like, if you believe it hard enough, you can achieve it. And what's happened is this has kind of come from the culture and has found itself, its way into the church. And a lot of churches are teaching something similar to that in this moment, that increasingly within the church, leaders are saying and writing things that, that, that tell Christians like, you are enough, you are amazing, find yourself, believe in the power of you. I went to... Um, I don't know what they call it now, like X or something. It used to be known as Twitter um, to kind of get some, some tweets, if that's what we still call them, um, kind of for some popular, well-known preachers, just to kind of get an idea of what, what some of the things that we're, we're, we're finding. And here's, here's a few. Maybe you're facing an illness. You're raising a difficult child. You're in a tough time at work. That is not going to defeat you. You're going to overflow with strength, with wisdom, with health, with favor. God is fighting for you. He's bigger than any force that's trying to hold you back. He's bigger than negative words that were spoken over you. You wouldn't have those challenges if there weren't greatness in you. The next one, what do you call yourself? How you call it is how it will be. Say this, I call my body well. I call my mind good. I call myself strong. I call myself debt free. Your setback is a setup. You are going to do great things. Now there's elements of truth in all of these tweets, but the main character, the hero in each of these is primarily you. And God is playing this supporting role in all of it. Now we love, we love verses like Philippians 4.13. 
that one, like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And, and why, why do we slap it on a mug? We put it on a bumper sticker. We put it um, on a bookmark. It's because that verse makes us feel strong. It makes us feel like we can handle it. So that verse makes us feel like we can be the hero of our own story. And this, this is what a lot of church, uh, teaching in the church is, is kind of coming out as, that we have become the main character. A lot of preaching is, is that it's not us finding ourselves in God's plan and God's story, but instead God finding himself in our plans and our story. And he's the secondary character who makes an occasional guest appearance in the story that is our life. Like Matt Chandler, he, he says, we've ended up trying to run a marathon on cotton candy. We've tried to be bold in the day of war while eating Twinkies. And so as a result of all of this, what I'm saying is we have a great view of ourselves and a small view of God. And scripture, it tells us, you know what, we need to think less of ourselves. In God's word, it warns us against pride in ourselves. Like James chapter 4, verse 10 it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so if you're going to go and look for confidence in this moment within yourself, I'm saying you're probably going to end up disappointed because reality has this way of telling you that you're not as impressive as you might think you are. Like, I, I, I'm not a big UFC fan or mixed martial arts. Um, that, like, I, I don't understand, like, watching people roll around in each other's blood in a ring. I, I just don't get that. Um, but I remember watching this video where there was a fighter coming to the weigh-in, and he, he stands and he's, he's looking at this uh, opponent and he's, he's talking a big game. He's going, I'm going to de- destroy you. I- I'm going to win. I'm the best that there ever was. And, and so this is going back and forth. He's talking this big game, but then it flashes to the fight. And the guy who's talking the big game, it shows him get knocked out by the other guy in a single punch. He talks this big game, but he couldn't deliver. And this is often what happens in churches, that we get together on Sunday morning, we're giving ourselves these pep talks about how strong we are, how great we are, how capable we are. But then 24 hours later, we go into the culture and we get our teeth knocked in. And in our own strength, we're not equal to the task that this cultural moment requires. As financially stable, physically fit, mentally sound, loved, or whatever else you may be, there are things that are coming our way that are greater and bigger than what we can handle in our own strength and in our own wisdom. And so you personally don't intimidate Satan. It's, it's like, it's not a physical fight. It's, it's, it's a spiritual fight. And he's been at this much longer than you have, that, that he's wiser, he's craftier than you are. And so my point is this, confidence isn't found within ourselves. Now, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Romans chapter 8, as that's, that's where we're going to be. Now, scholars think it was sometime during the winter of AD 57, 58, that the Apostle Paul, he writes this letter to the Romans. And the believers that Paul writes this letter to are believers who are living in a time um, when persecution is beginning to intensify against uh, Christians. And it's a culture in which Christians are soon going to be burned alive and fed to the lions. And so this is who Paul writes his letter to. I, I, I hope things never get that intense for us here in Canada. But here's the thing. As our society becomes increasingly hostile towards the Christian beliefs and the faith, the context of this letter in which Christians are mocked and mistreated for their faith. 
that's going to become increasingly applicable. Like there, I remember like just years ago when I was a kid, like you'd read these verses about persecution and suffering for your, your faith. And we're going, ah, that, that, will, that, that could never happen. But, but things are starting to change here where we're living. And it's, it's not an impossibility anymore. And so Paul's words and the, writers, uh, the words of other writers in the New Testament, they, they might begin to resonate with us more and more. And so we're going to start Romans chapter 8, verse 36 and 37. Paul writes, As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so Paul writes to people who are being killed and slaughtered because of their faith. And yet he goes, you are more than conquerors. Why are they more than conquerors? Does he point to anything that they have to brag about? Do they have anything to brag about? No. He goes, you are more than conquerors through him who loves us. You are loved by God. And so your victory is not found in in your strength, how large your salary, how high your IQ, how persuasively you can argue your case. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And so listen to how Paul, he goes on in Romans chapter 11 to praise God. Verse 33, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so Paul's point is this, we need to stop looking at ourselves and start looking to God. And so courage comes from looking to God. So Paul's going like, you might go, why why should we look to God? Well, he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, first off, God is rich. Like Christians are losing their land, their possessions, the ability to earn a living because of their allegiance to Jesus and so put yourself in their shoes. It's scary because they're faced with the same questions we would, we would wonder, like, what am I going to eat? Where, where are we going to live? How am I going to provide for my family? Those are big questions. Now, over the past few years, my, my wife, Shannon, and I, we've been renovating the house we moved into a few years ago. Um, if it was 1991, our house looked great, but we moved it in 2020, so it was kind of dated. And so we've been picking away at that over time. And if you're like us, you have to budget for renovations. Because, like, have you gone to the hardware store lately? Like, a sheet of plywood is, like, 90 bucks. And, and so, like, you've you got to be intentional about how to, like, measure 33 times, cut once, um, to make sure you don't mess that up. But here's the thing. We had constraints. We have to make sure that we have the resources, the finances, and that what we want to use is available. Because here's the thing, like, I I have to first go, do I have the money to buy the bathtub? And then is the bathtub I want to buy available? Because I'm not able to just kind of step into my backyard and and fashion a bathtub. I'm not capable of doing that. And so what I'm saying is we're used to being constrained by our resources. We all have limits, regardless of our income, We have limits as to what we can afford to do. And the inflation that we're experiencing right now in 2023, just kind of a reminder of that. Like we all take these expensive, exotic vacations every week to the gas station and to the grocery store. That's like, there goes my money. Now in Psalm 50 verse 10, 
God kind of makes this break. He goes like, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And for most of us, we'd be like, oh yeah, God, well, I own two pounds of ground beef in my fridge. Like that, 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 that's our boast. That's what we've got. But God is not constrained. In Genesis chapter one, it tells us that God speaks and things come into existence. God doesn't need anything, not even the raw materials. He just simply speaks and it comes into existence. And we don't understand the type of wealth that God has Now, in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, there's this beautiful thing that we are called, we are told, we are co-heirs with Christ. We are heirs of God. And so what that means is that God plans on sharing all that is his with his children. God is going to share his riches with us. And in 2023, here's the thing I know. We're, We're tempted to kind of keep our heads down and not draw any attention to ourselves so that as much as we can, we can hold on to what we think is ours, our money, our possessions. And Paul is saying you don't have to worry about what you might lose here and now in this moment because the wealth of God is immense and it's eternally ours. And so what you might lose here is but a fraction of what God has promised to those who are faithful. Now, it's not just that God is rich and so that's why we look to him. Paul keeps going and in verse 33, he also says this, God is wise, like a few years ago, our lead pastor, Greg, and, and Bruce Stewart, who was one of our elders at the time, were doing a study with a couple from Iran um, because they wanted to know more about Jesus. And so um, that couple spoke Farsi, didn't speak English very well. Greg doesn't speak Farsi very well either. And so they, they come together, and so Greg would teach, uh, and Bruce would teach, and then uh, their son-in-law would translate from English into Farsi, so that was understanding. So Greg and Bruce teach, the son-in-law translates, and then uh, they understand as it's brought to them in Farsi. And so they keep this going. And every once in a while, just to make sure that they're understanding, they're good to keep going, Greg and Bruce would go, Thumbs up. Cool. We're, we're, we're good to go. Um, and so this kept, keeps going. It's like teaching, translating, understanding. Thumbs up. We're, we're cool. We understand. And eventually, the son-in-law said, you might want to kind of cool it with all the, the thumbs up. Because for you Canadians, that means cool, okay, we're good. For Iranians, that means something totally different. Every time you do this, that's the equivalent of you giving them the bird, that you're basically flipping them off. And so it's kind of like, God loves you. He sent his son to die for you on the cross. And then you flip them off every time you tell them that. And so once they learned that, they said they kind of buried their arms uh, under their, or their hands under their armpits just to make sure they weren't doing that. Now, what's kind of cool that praise God, despite the cultural misunderstanding, uh, that husband and wife, they gave their life to Christ. Their son, you pass him almost every Sunday as you're coming into the church. That's Majed. He gave his life to Christ and his family. So there's some pretty cool stories there. Now, I tell this story for this reason. The time in which we live, the place in which we live, and its cultural particularities shape the way we view the world and the way we interact with it. And so everything you think, everything you believe, shapes the way that you view the world and and how you kind of experience it and interact. And so the discomfort we're feeling as the church right now, that might not make a lot of sense to us. Um, we're trying to understand why is God allowing this to happen? And God's, God's view of reality is much different than ours. He comprehends things in ways that you will never comprehend. And days may come 
if they haven't already come, where you're ostracized, mocked, oppressed because of your faith. Maybe relationships will be strained or they might fade. You might find your faith is a hindrance and not a help to getting a job. Maybe you'll find yourself in court or worse because of your Christian convictions. And in those moments, we're going to be tempted to question God's knowledge and his power. We're going to struggle to understand why God in his sovereign power isn't putting an end to kind of um, our difficulties and how he allows these difficulties we experience to continue to persist. And here's the thing, we're, we're looking to tomorrow or a little bit further down the road and we're going like, God, don't you see what's taking place here? And we're thinking about our comfort and security. But God's looking further down the road than you ever will be able to look or ever think to look. Like imagine this, this tape measure is, is time. And so let's say we're, we're, we're right here on the timeline, like 20 inches, we're right there. And so this is what we know. And, and I, look, I can look back on the timeline. I go, here's what happened yesterday because I was there, I know. And here's what happened a few years ago if my memory uh, serves me correctly. And um, I, I think history books tell me this is what happened. This, I mean, it's written by the victors, so who, who knows? But this is what I think has happened in the past. But then when it comes tomorrow, I can go, I think this will happen tomorrow. I mean, that's my plans and, and kind of the general trends, that, that shows where, where things are heading. I can speculate, but that's about as good as it gets. I, I can guess as to what's happening. And I'm doing this all from on the timeline. But God, his view is different. He is the author of time. And so he sits outside of the timeline and he's looking at the ending and the beginning at the same time. And he sees everything that's taking place. I really wish I brought a better uh, tape measure for this. Um, He sees the whole thing and he's looking at comprehending time in a way that you will never comprehend. And so this is important. He sees the big picture. God knows what is coming And the God who sees all and knows all is managing things in ways that we can't comprehend. And so this is why in Romans 8.28, Paul can say this, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so if you, you have a Bible here with you or you're on your digital device, whatever it is, I would like highlight, I would circle, I would underline those two words, all things. And Paul's saying, in all things, God knows what he is doing. Like, God doesn't just see how the things that are taking place today are going to affect tomorrow, but years down the road. He sees what's taking place here in this moment right now is going to impact eternity. Like, these years, 2020 through 2023, have not been like the best years on record for Nova Scotia or just kind of in human history. And we're going like, this isn't fun. But God's looking at it and he's going, but I know how I'm going to use it. They say, I'm going to use it for good. And God is not making mistakes. And God also sees how the things that take place in your life are going to impact the lives of other people. And he's using it. And so as the God who sits outside of time, his wisdom, his knowledge are immeasurable in his sovereign providence. He's orchestrating all of history towards his intended goal. So God sees the big picture. We don't. And to tell God, you know what? You don't got this right. You're messing it up. That's just arrogant. 
Like imagine you go to a book signing. Um, there, let's say there's a book signing happening out at Chapters in Bears Lake and the, the author's there with all his books and you haven't read the book, but you walk in, you pick one up off the table, flip to the middle, you read a few paragraphs from the middle, you close it, you go to the author and goes, man, that's terrible. What an awful book. I don't get the plot. Like what were you thinking when you wrote this book? Like, you wouldn't do that because you, you haven't seen the beginning, you haven't seen the end, you've missed a lot of things that are taking place there. And so what we have to do is trust that our God, who is sovereign over time, is wise and that he knows what he is doing. And over and over again in Scripture, God promises that he's never going to leave us, he's never going to forsake us, and when we suffer for our faith, we have to understand we haven't been forgotten by God. He knows. He's well aware and when we can't see what God is up to or where he is, we have to remember that he's working all things together for good. Somebody paraphrased Charles Spurgeon this way. They said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, when we're going, this, this doesn't make sense, what are you doing? We must always trust his heart. And so these times we're living in are, are times full of questions and anxiety. We're, we're, we're going, what if, if the, 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 the trends keep going in this way and we envision the worst possible things happening? And in these times, we also have to remind ourselves of this, that God is able. Like I was, um, if you were here last week, I shared about how my doctor was like, you need to start exercising more back in, in March. So that's something I've been trying to do more and more of. And so I'll do that um, at home and I've got some weights and stuff. And so I was exercising the other day and my daughter, Jane, she comes, I had set one down on the floor and she comes and she tries to pick it up with one hand and she can't get it up. And then she, she bends down with both hands and tries to lift it and she can barely budge it. And she's like, that is heavy. I, 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 can't, I can't lift it. Can you, daddy? And so it's like, yeah, I can. And I pick it down. And I'm like, yeah, look at this. That's 30 pounds. It's like not that impressive, but she's like, oh, you're strong. And, and can you remember being a kid? And maybe like there would be something that was, that was just too heavy for you to be able to lift. Maybe it was a bag of potatoes, a bag of flour, a bag of rice that was in the back of the car. And, mom and mom's like, go, go get that out of the car for me. And so you'd walk out there and you, you would try and pick it up in all your strength, but you, you could not get it out of the trunk. And you're like, I, think, I guess that lives there. It's just going to be part of the, the car from now on. But then dad would come out and he, he, he'd pick up that bag of flour or rice or potatoes or whatever it was with one arm and you're like man you're strong and then with the other arm he could still bend down scoop you up and carry both and in your strength it seemed impossible but in your father's strength it seemed like it was nothing and what we must stop thinking is that of what we not, must stop thinking about what is possible in terms of human strength but imagine what's possible with God in Ephesians 3.20, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. And I love that because Paul's going like, just try. Like stretch your imagination and do what you can. Think about what's possible for God. Okay, you got something there? You're not even close. Like you can't even come close to imagining what's possible with God. And so when we get a vision for God's greatness, that's where we find courage. 
When we take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on our Father, that's where we find confidence and hope. When we focus on his character, we find the courage to face our fears. Our lack of power is swallowed in his complete sufficiency. God is greater than your circumstances, whatever those circumstances might be. You could lose your job, but God is rich and he can provide. We don't know how our days are going to unfold, but God does. He's aware and he's using it. Like growing up in, in our home, we had an unfinished basement. Um, and so there was like a lot of dark corners and the furniture stored down there. And it was, it was just, I did not like that basement. Um, like mom would send me down to the deep freeze, go get something out of there. And like, I would run as fast as I could, spend the least amount of time in that basement possible alone because it terrified me. But here's the thing. If I was down in the workshop hanging out with my dad, it was a completely different story. Like, it didn't matter what might be lurking in the shadows down there, whatever was in my imagination. I was safe because my dad was there with me and he was capable of handling anything that might be down there. In Romans 8.35, Paul asks this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And who can separate us from the love of Christ? Is it going to be distress, peril, the sword, persecution, suffering, sickness, hostility? And Paul says, none of that can. No matter what you might have to endure in this world as a Christian, as a child of God, nothing has the power to separate or break the relationship that you have with your loving and sovereign father. There's nothing. And so the courage we need comes from getting our eyes off of ourselves and onto our Father. And when we do that, that changes anything because God is greater than, than anything that this world can give you or take away from you. It's through him that we are more than conquerors, through him who loves us. And so remember whose you are. The culture might be changing, but God's presence, his wisdom, his knowledge, his power have not changed one bit. And so we belong to God, but here's the thing. If we expect that God's going to give us perfect peace and prosperity and to right all our wrongs and make our lives perfectly comfortable right now, we've misread the Bible. And so next Sunday, I'm going to talk about the story that we find ourselves living in. Let's pray.